Once a group of soldiers were receiving instructions in hand-to-hand combat. When the session was over, the drill sergeant wanted to review. And so he asked one of the men, tell me again, what steps would you take if someone was coming up from behind you with a large, sharp knife? And that's when the new recruit answered, I'd take big steps. Well, Luke 7 opens with a soldier who takes some big steps. Some big steps to Jesus. (laughs) You see, the Roman legion was the finest fighting force ever assembled. And as a member of the Roman army, this sergeant had never been defeated in the field of battle until now. For now he faces a foe that he can't conquer. You see, his servant, really his friend, has become terminally ill. And in verse 3, the centurion, he sends a dispatch of Jews to solicit the help of Jesus. And notice why. It was because he was humble. He felt unworthy to come to Jesus himself. But that's not how the Jews portray him. They approach Jesus bragging about this man's good works. We're told in verses 4 and 5, they came to Jesus saying the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. They start pointing to the man's good deeds. You see, they want to play a game of tit for tat with God. I've done this, so God, you do that. A lot of people play that game. There's only one problem. God doesn't. As Jesus approaches the centurion's house, his friends meet him. And they convey the man's true attitude. In verse 6, we see them say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. You see, his attitude was exactly the opposite of what the Jews had conveyed. The centurion says in verse 7, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers unto me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. And in other words, I understand authority, Jesus. I know how to give orders. I know how to take orders. And I am confident that Jesus has authority over this illness. Therefore, if you will just say the word, the disease will be forced to flee. In verse 9, Jesus says, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then he heals his servant. Not because of the good deeds he had done, but because of his faith. You see, faith is not bartering my goodness for God's blessing. It doesn't play tit for tat. Rather than believing that Jesus will bless you because you're worthy, real faith believes that Jesus will bless you in spite of the fact that you're not worthy. Is your faith tonight in a God of grace or are you trusting in your own good works? Twenty-five miles now from Capernaum was a city called Nain. Jesus and his band of merry men, they're entering the city. They're laughing and rejoicing. They are on the heels of this miracle. I doubt if anyone but Jesus noticed the freshly dug grave outside the city gate. Now, on the other hand, exiting the city, here comes another group of people. These are mourners. They're escorting a widow and the corpse of her son. Now, get the picture in your mind. We've got a Fourth of July parade coming into the city. We've got a funeral procession exiting the city. There's a head-on collision. A colossal collision is about to occur. Here is the ultimate showdown. Life and light and laughter collide head on with death and darkness and despair. 
The grim reaper meets the resurrection and the life. And guess who wins? In verse 13, Jesus tells the bereaved mother not to weep. And then he speaks to the corpse. Young man, I say to you, arise. And that's exactly what the boy does. Once again, Jesus crashes a funeral and spoils the spades of the grave diggers. Now, I love what Jesus says to the woman or what it says of Jesus in verse 15. It says, and Jesus presented him to his mother. After he raised him from the dead, he presented him to his mother. I like that. You see, Jesus gave back to the mom the son that death had stolen. Perhaps you have a child tonight who you feel like has been stolen, who's lost, who's dead in his sins. I want you to understand Jesus sees your pain. Jesus knows what you feel. He has compassion on you too as he did this woman. And here's the promise. If you will give your son to Jesus, Jesus will save that son and he'll give him back to you. I love this. Jesus presented him to his mother. Now on the banks of the Jordan, John the Baptist had proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. But now he asks, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And in verse 22, Jesus answers by listing the miraculous signs that have followed his ministry. These miracles of Jesus had revealed God's power and had fulfilled God's word. In a moment of weakness, John had doubted Jesus, but Jesus never doubted John. And in verses 24 through 28, Jesus commends John's strength and his character and his ministry. Jesus ate with sinners. He visited their homes in order to lead them to his heavenly home. And yet the Pharisees judged his association with sinners as an accommodation to sin. Guys, people will question you. They'll misunderstand you. They'll criticize you too if your love and concern for sinners takes you to the wrong side of the tracks. Jesus is dining with a Pharisee when a prostitute expresses her admiration. In verse 38, she washes his feet with her hair. She anoints Jesus with a fragrant oil. Jesus points out that such displays are common for forgiven sinners. The Pharisee saw a woman with a soiled reputation and turned up his nose. Jesus sees a woman with a repentant heart and offers his forgiveness. Who says men have to have a monopoly on ministry. Luke chapter 8 begins with a long list of loyal ladies who helped support Jesus' ministry. Among these ladies was Mary Magdalene, who Luke says was delivered from seven demons. And Joanna, she was the wife of an important official in the court of King Herod. Understand, in Jewish culture, it was a disgrace for a rabbi to be seen talking to a woman out in public. Jesus had no such hang-ups. He valued women and he included them in his ministry. You know, I definitely believe that the Bible teaches strong male leadership in the church, but that doesn't mean that women can't also play a vital role in ministry as well. Jesus emphasizes the parable of the sower. The word of God is like a seed. It has power to produce life, but a seed's effectiveness depends on the quality of the soil. And a fertile soil is a humble, repentant heart. That's why Jesus says in verse 18, 
Take heed how you hear. Are you just a connoisseur? Are you just sort of a sampler of Bible studies? Oh, you love to listen to Bible studies. And then you go out with your husband or your wife to lunch and you grade that week's Bible study. Oh, I'd give him a B this week. Not quite an A. A little bit better than a C. You know, are we graders of Bible studies? Or do we listen with an eagerness to learn and apply and obey what God speaks to our hearts? In chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus redefines the family. When Mary and Jesus' half-brothers pay him a visit, he points to his followers and he says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In other words, obedience is thicker than blood. In verse 22 of chapter 8, Jesus told his disciples that they were going over to the other side of the lake, but the storm kicked up and they thought they were going under. (laughs) Sound familiar? Hey, the storms of life are a test. I repeat, they're only a test. Will we let the desperation of the moment snuff out our faith Or will we show a determination to trust in God's word? He's promised to you, not that you're going under, but that you're going over, no matter how fierce the storm might seem. After Jesus casts out a demon there in Gadara, he sails back to Capernaum. The crowds are sort of pushing in. They're shoving. They're bumping into Jesus. But the woman that Jesus heals reaches up and grabs him with the grip of faith. Here's a lesson. A vital lesson. God's blessings are received not from incidental contact with Jesus. They're received from deliberate grasps of faith. You can just sort of hang out and bump in, hang out in the church, or you can reach up yourself and take hold. That's what gains God's blessing. It's interesting that in chapter 8, verse 43, Dr. Luke is the only gospel writer who details this woman's condition. She had been bleeding for 12 years. She had wasted her whole life savings on practicing physicians. But here she gets a touch from the great physician, and she's healed. Jesus goes on to raise a little girl from the dead. You know, he could have at that point showed off his miracles. You know, he could have taken pictures of this little girl rising from the dead published them in a monthly newsletter in some kind of a glossy publication. Jesus could have done it that way. But notice what he does. He tells the girl's parents to keep the miracle quiet. Just keep it to yourself. Wow. His attitude is is an example to us that not even Jesus himself had room to boast. You see, God calls us to be faithful, to leave the press releases and the fanfare to God. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends his disciples to preach and to heal, not spin their wheels. In verse 5, he tells his disciples, Don't butt heads with a hard heart. If a man puts his foot down in unbelief, well then just shake the dust off your foot and move on. King Herod thought that he had silenced the voice of conviction when he had killed John the Baptist. Now he's perplexed over Jesus. What's going on here? Has John been resurrected? Is this Elijah? Is this one of the Old Testament prophets? He wants an answer. And you know what? So does Jesus. But he wants an answer from his disciples. And so after he feeds the 5,000, he asks in verse 20, but who do you say 
that I am. In fact, Jesus also wants an answer from you and me tonight. An answer of that very question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? That's the question that will determine your destiny. Your answer to that question is the most important answer you'll come up with. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Peter gives the right answer. He says, the Christ of God, the Messiah, the promised one. I read a story once of a cold, windy day. A man was out riding his motorcycle. The wind was just cutting through his jacket, and so he decided to take his jacket off, pull it around, put it on backwards so the wind would bounce off and wouldn't be able to cut through the opening in his jacket. Tragically, though, he was in an accident. And a rookie policeman was the first to arrive on the scene. The man, though, still died. Later, the policeman reported, I tried to save him. But by the time I got his head straightened back around, he was dead. (laughs) Well, hey, this particular encounter with his disciples is Jesus' attempt to turn them around. You see, the disciples have figured it out. They know who Jesus is. He is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah. But they have the wrong idea as far as where he's headed. They think he's going to be king. But from this point onward, Jesus will explain to them that he's headed for a crucifixion, not a coronation. And in chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples that a cross, not a crown, is in their future as well. Did you know that? Yes, one day we'll reign and rule with Jesus, but for the moment we're called to take up our cross and follow him. That's what he says to us in verse 23. Then he said to them all, all of his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, on the cross, a man had no will of his own. He was completely vulnerable to the will of another, namely Rome. To take up my cross is to make myself just as vulnerable, just as susceptible, just as responsive to the will of God. As a crucified man. In chapter 9 verse 28. Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip. Through his miracles and through his teaching. He's been revealing to them his identity. But now he wants to show them firsthand. And Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. So that they won't lose heart when they see him on the cross. Disfigured. Before their very eyes. On the mountain. The glory of the Godhead. Shines through Jesus' manhood. The appearance of his face is altered. His tattered robe becomes glistening white. Moses and Elijah appear by his side, and they together speak with him of his looming death in Jerusalem. In verse 33, old Peter sort of mumbles, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But notice what's added, not knowing what he said. He just, you know, you know. notice Peter's modus operandi. This is how he operates here. Ready, fire, aim. <laughs> That's how Peter operated. He always shot before he aimed. You know, he always said the first thing that came into his mind rather than stopping and thinking about a, an accurate response. Peter was notorious for putting his foot in his mouth. 
Suddenly we're told in verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were fearful as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. In other words, Peter needs to shut up and listen. Don't we all? When the disciples descend the mountain, they're confronted by a stubborn demon that they can't cast out. Jesus rebukes their lack of faith and then he rebukes the demon. People are awed by his miracles. But in verse 44, Jesus talks about the cross. He also reminds his disciples that the greatest in the kingdom has a childlike faith. In verse 49, James and John get a little trigger happy. You see, the Samaritans, they snub Jesus. They refuse to let him pass through their country. And so James and John want to call down fire from heaven. Lord, let's teach them all. Let's have a barbecue and let's use the Samaritans as spare ribs. Let's give it to them, Lord, Elijah style. Jesus rebukes their desire for revenge and he tells them, wait a minute. I'm into life, not death. I'm into deliverance, not destruction. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, Jesus encounters some true barriers to discipleship. The first one he encounters is a preoccupation with present comforts. Jesus responds and says, wait a minute. You know, no follower of mine has a permanent address. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Don't get preoccupied with the things of this world. Next, he talks about a preoccupation with future securities. A man wants to stay behind so that he can receive his inheritance. Jesus says, don't delay following me for a worldly inheritance. And then lastly, he addresses a preoccupation with past sentimental feelings. In other words, don't wait to follow Jesus in order to say goodbye to your past. There can be no looking back. You need to put your hand to the plow and press onward. You see, to follow Jesus, he alone must become your yesterday your today, and your forever. Luke chapter 10 teaches us the lesson. Divine missions always need to be joint ventures. Jesus sends out his 70 disciples, but he does so in pairs, two by two. There is safety in numbers. In verse 17, when these dynamic duos return, they can't stop talking about all that they have done for God. You know, I know a lot of churches and Christians who have the same problem. They had experienced power over demons. They had healed the sick. But that was no big deal to Jesus. He saw Satan booted out of heaven. He warns them not to take pride in what we do for God, but in what God has done for us. Rather rejoice that their names are written in heaven. In verse 25, Jesus uses a parable to peer into our hearts. A man is mugged on the road to Jericho. A priest and a Levite, both religious types, they refuse to get involved. They walk right past him, but a Samaritan stops to offer the man some help. J. Vernon McGee, he used to humorously suggest that the reason the priest and Levite had passed by without stopping to help is that they saw that the man had already been robbed. The Jews despised the Samaritans. That was the point of the parable. The Samaritans were a mixed breed of Jew and Gentile. 
But the true possessors of bad blood were the Jews. Jesus stuns his listeners by saying that this caring Samaritan was more a child of God than either of the two religious men, either the Levite or the priest. Guys, do we care about people in need or are we too busy trying to be religious to give a rip about people? I'll never forget going to teach a Sunday school class one time. And I think I was going to teach on this very passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I turned out of the street and I drove down the driveway and there was a lady walking down the street that I knew she was going to church. You could tell by how she was dressed. And I drove right past her to go go down and teach that class on the Good Samaritan. And when I pulled into the parking lot of the church, it dawned on me what I had done. Here I am, so busy being religious, I passed up an opportunity to help. And turned back around and drove back and said, Are you going down to the church? I, yes, I am. I said, Would you like a ride? I sure would. You know, are we too busy with church work, with church stuff, with religious stuff, that we've forgotten about the hurting people in our lives? In verses 35 and 42 through 42, Mary and Martha are preparing for a special dinner guest. It's not every night you get Jesus to come over for dinner. But when Jesus arrives, Mary is so enthralled with him that she abandons her tasks. Martha suggests to the master that he rebuke her distracted sister. She needs some help in the kitchen. But Martha is the sister that Jesus rebukes. She's so busy serving Jesus that she has no time to stop and sit and enjoy being with him. And Jesus says in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Are you a Martha running around serving a God you rarely spend time getting to know? The disciples witnessed most of Jesus' miracles, but they never asked him, teach us how to walk on water or teach us how to heal the sick or teach us how to raise the dead or how to multiply the loaves and fishes. Rather, in chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Perhaps they sensed that his real power came from his prayer life. And Jesus gives them a model prayer. He points out the ingredients to prayer. Worship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Surrender. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Confession. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Deliverance over temptation. Lead us not into temptation. It's all right there for us. It's interesting. This is the most famous prayer in the Bible. We have plaques made up with it right there. We cross-stitch it on little nice little doodads that we hang in our bathroom. You know, we, we recite it before football games, you know. You know, we do everything with this prayer except really pray it. We need to pray this model prayer. Jesus tells us in a parable, verse 5, that God answers desperate, heartfelt, persistent prayers. If you want your prayers answered, don't just say prayers. Pray prayers. The parable that Jesus tells about this fellow pounding at his neighbor's door is a picture of the man's humility, his dependence on this man, and his desperation. Often God waits to meet our needs until our desperation rises up and exceeds our sophistication. In other words, until 
we're not too proud to ask. And speaking of asking, if you want good gifts from God, even His best gift, the power of the Holy Spirit, then you need to keep on asking and seeking and knocking. As Jesus taught, a woman in the crowd shouted out in verse 27 of chapter 11, Blessed is the womb who bore you and the breast that nursed you. In other words, she was praising Mary. But Jesus answers more than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, far more honored than his mother Mary is the person who becomes a womb for God's word and gives birth to obedience. Nineveh repented through a prejudiced preacher who hated them. (laughs) Jonah. How much different was Jesus? Jesus loved the people that he came to serve, enough to die for them, and yet they rejected him. Verse 34 teaches us that our eyes are the gateway to our souls. That's why we need to be careful where we focus our eyes, where we put our attention. You've heard the expression, a feast for your eyes. Be careful what your eyes feast on. It could result in heartburn. Jesus was kind and compassionate to blatant sinners like prostitutes and tax collectors. Harsh and fiery words were reserved for the religious hypocrites. Hypocrites. Oh, they'll clean up their outward act, but their attitude will reek with rottenness. And hypocrites, they love to play trivial pursuit. They'll major on the minor issues and then minor on the major issues. How about you? Are you really concerned with what concerns God? Six times in chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, Jesus warns, or he says, woe to these hypocritical Jews. Luke chapter 12 teaches that it's impossible to cover up sin. Verse 3 warns us, what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. During allergy season, my nose starts to run. And it was running one night while I was at the Braves game. And I was standing there during the seventh inning stretch, you know, sort of picking my nose. and Sort of giving it, you know, the once over, trying to halfway pick it and halfway stop the snot rolling down my lip. And, and I was just sort of there, you know, giving it the number like this. And Nick was standing next to me. And all of a sudden I... Looked up on the matrix board out there in center field. And lo and behold, there was Pastor Sandy picking his nose in front of 50,000 people. You know, I think heaven's going to have one of those matrix boards. And all those sins not confessed and covered by the blood of Jesus are going to be flashed up there on those matrix boards. Hey, you need to confess your sin tonight. Get it covered. Jesus will wash you clean. Luke chapter 12 teaches me that I need to fear and love God with intense passion. Verse 5 tells me that I should fear God for the very fact that He can throw me into the flames of hell. Verse 7 instructs me to love God for the fact that He's so concerned for me that even the hairs on my head are numbered. Fear God. Love God. If you've invested in the stock market... In recent months, right now, you're probably asking the question, why do we refer to stocks as securities? (laughs) 
Well, in chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, Jesus teaches us the insecurity of earthly riches. The quest for wealth is a short-sighted pursuit. A rich man spends his life making money. He has to build bigger silos, but he does nothing to prepare to meet God. And in verse 19, he boasts, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But in verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? They say when John D. Rockefeller died, it was asked how much did he leave behind, and someone said, All of it. Jesus teaches us the moral of the story in verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Birds don't worry about the food they'll eat. Flowers don't worry about the petals they'll wear. And if God takes care of the fowl and the flower, he'll certainly meet your needs too. Jesus tells us in verse 31, Seek the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added to you. In other words, worry about pleasing Jesus and all your other worries will vanish away. In verse 40, Jesus says, You also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus can come at any time. The rapture is an imminent event and we need to be ready. A Christian should be on his knees and on his toes at the same time. Finally, Luke chapter 12 teaches us that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, promises to also become a source of conflict, especially among men who are bound together by family ties. Jesus may break up your family in order to build his family. Some folks have got to choose. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to follow your family? How much does Jesus really mean to you? Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, teach that a man's physical circumstances don't always reflect his spiritual condition. Jesus gives an important analogy, especially in light of the World Trade Center tragedies. He says a tower collapses. There are a group of people in it. What does that mean? Does that mean... That the people in the tower were worse sinners than the people who escaped? No. What it means is that we're all guilty of producing a fallen world where innocent people suffer, where bad stuff happens. You see, calamity in one man's life doesn't mean that he's a worse sinner than the next guy. Rather, it means that we're all sinners and we've produced a fallen world and we're all deserving of the same calamity. But by the grace of God, There go I. I could have been in that World Trade Center tower. You could have been in that World Trade Center tower. Verses 6 through 9 tell of God's patience with the fig tree or the nation Israel. You see, by this point, Jesus is three years into his ministry to the Jews. In verse 8, he extends his ministry a year in hopes that the nation will repent. Sadly, it does not. There was a woman who had been hunchback for 18 years. Our text tells us that the infirmity had been caused by Satan. Now, not all disease is demonic. Not all disease is caused by Satan. Don't don't fall into that trap. 
living in a fallen world subjects us to certain diseases. But Satan can use a sickness to attack us. And Jesus lays hands on this woman. He looses her from her oppression and he heals her body. And we're told in verse 13, she was made straight and glorified God. There are a lot of people in this room tonight that could use that as their testimony. They were made straight and glorified God. When the woman is healed, the ruler of the synagogue complains because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. What a warped sense of the will of God to think that he cares more about observing rituals than repairing damaged people. Jesus says that you treat your livestock better than hurting people. In verse 15, Jesus points out that they'll make an exception to water their ox, but not to heal a woman. Unbelievable. The ruler of the synagogue, he would have said to this lady, Hey, come back tomorrow, lady, and see God. He's open Monday through Friday. But the great physician says, I'm open seven days a week. In chapter 13, verses 22 through 30, Jesus points out that many people are going to miss out on God's kingdom. He says to the pretenders, I do not know you. Depart from me. Nobody in heaven will be a stranger to Jesus. You get there by knowing Him. It's not what you do, guys. It's who you know. And let me suggest to you, if you don't know Him already, I'd spend the rest of my days getting to know Jesus on a first-name basis. In chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus is warned that Herod wants to kill him. Jesus calls him a fox. He's not afraid of that fox. Jesus will die in Jerusalem, but it will be done according to prophecy. And speaking of Jerusalem, in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus cries for the holy city. In millenniums past, the pre-incarnate Christ had wanted to draw the Jews to his healing side, but they were not willing. Jesus wants to do the same for you. He wants to draw you close. He wants to heal and nurture you. Are you willing? Jesus often healed on the Sabbath day, and deliberately so. He loved to watch the Pharisees squirm and the hypocrites sweat. And in Luke chapter 14, he heals a man with dropsy. This man was probably a wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons. (laughs) Actually, dropsy was edema. The kidneys would shut down. The tissues would fill with fluids. The body would become bloated. Dropsy was very painful, and in ancient times it was fatal. Jesus heals the man, and in doing so, he embarrasses the Jewish scholars and Pharisees. In verses 7 through 11 of chapter 14, Jesus reminds us that God promotes those who aren't looking for promotion. Take the prominent seat, and you'll be moved to the rear. Sit in the back, and God may just move you forward. Verse 11 says, For whoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Guys, those who place others first will never be last. Unselfish living involves hanging out with those who do nothing for your image. What merit is there to give to people who are only going to return the favor? What many people call giving is only just swapping In verses 12 through 14, Jesus tells us if we give to people who can't give in return, that's when we truly give. 
we need to remember that this year at Christmas. God throws a party and he sends out invitations to the Jews. Rather than RSVP, they respond with excuses. And so he decides to offer the party to others, to the down and out. And God tells his servants in verse 23, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Guys, this is our job. God wants his house to be a full house. Anybody and everybody is welcome and it's our job to go out and get them and bring them in. But before you decide to follow Jesus, you've got to count the cost. There is a cross to carry. There is a price that's involved. Commitment requires total devotion. It's been said, it doesn't take much of a man to make a Christian. It just takes all of him that there is. Verse 29 tells us that Jesus would prefer you not even to start out in the Christian life than to start with no intention on finishing. Count the cost. Follow through. Be serious about your commitment to Jesus. Once there was a little girl named Edith. And she ran to tell her mother that she had found her name in the Bible. She had opened the old King James Version that was sitting on the table. And she had read Luke chapter 15 verse 1. Jesus eateth with sinners. Well, the Pharisees, you see, they were snobs. And they looked down their nose at sinners. Jesus loved sinners. He ate with sinners. The Pharisees, though, lived to draw distinctions that would keep... People out of the kingdom of God. Jesus, on the other hand, lived to build bridges that would bring people in. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus takes aim at prejudice with three different parables. The first parable is about a shepherd who leaves his flock to save one lost sheep. You see, God is that good shepherd. God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. The second parable is about a woman who loses a coin and she conducts a massive non-stop search of her house until it's found. It's similar to the effort you give when, you spent, when you're late for that appointment and you can't find your car keys and you're searching the house, you're throwing things over, you're turning things upside down. Think of it this way. Sinners are like God's car keys and He'll postpone eternity until He finds everyone. Isn't that great? third parable is about a forgiving father. God is the father who forgives his wayward kids even after they've spent years in sin and wasted away his inheritance. When the prodigal son finally returns home, the father kills the fatted calf. He throws a party. He makes a feast. In verse 10, Jesus says, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven throws a party when a single sinner repents. Sadly, the prideful Pharisees, they just pouted. Once a Sunday school teacher asked her class, boys and girls, who was sorry when the prodigal son returned home? And of course, the answer she was looking for was the elder brother. But one little boy raised his hand and he said, the fatted calf. We know the lesson of the prodigal son, but we do, do we know about the elder brother? See, there are actually four lost objects in this chapter. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, there's the lost son, but then there's also this elder brother. He too is lost. But what makes his situation worse is that he doesn't know that he's lost. 
he thinks he's found. Like the Pharisees, he's oblivious to his lostness. Do you have a hard time accepting sinners? You know, we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And we count on that amazing grace in our relationship with God. But do we believe in his grace for others? Do we rejoice or do we grow resentful when God blesses a person who we don't think deserves to be blessed, who we look at them and say, oh, well, I deserve God's blessing more than them. Do we believe in grace for others? You may not be a prodigal son, but are you an elder brother? You've heard of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. Well, Luke chapter 16 begins with a parable I like to call The Taming of the Shrewd. Jesus commends a man for his cunning and he encourages his servants to be just as sly as the sinners out there. We need to be smart. Jesus makes a sad observation in verse 8. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. In other words, Christians have the tendency to at times act stupid. Because God lives in your heart, that doesn't mean you should turn off your mind. God guides us. Yes, through quiet times, but also through quick wits. And as a follower of Jesus, don't leave your common sense behind. Be as smart as the sinners, preferably smarter. Jesus warns us, if a man can't handle money, don't trust him with your soul. Luke 16 verse 11 tells us plainly, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Ministries and ministers that mishandle funds shouldn't be supported. Nobody strolls casually into God's kingdom. Verse 16 says that you press into it. It involves an act of your will. You step over the line. You make a commitment. You get into the game. Luke 16 ends with a scene from the other side. In Old Testament times, the afterlife was a duplex. One side of the duplex was paradise, Abraham's bosom as it was called. The other side was an oven. Those who trusted in God's promises, they followed Abraham into heaven's holding tank. The others paid with pain. They ended up in the burning part of Hades. Once Jesus put an end to sin, heaven's doors were opened. He led the captivity captive. He emptied out Abraham's bosom and brought them into the presence of God. And today, when a believer dies, he goes straight to heaven. Do not stop, go, do not stop it. Do not go past, what is it? You know what I'm saying. What is it? Do not pass go. There you go. You just go straight into heaven. That's my point. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the unbeliever, hell still awaits. And hey, hell is real. Just ask the rich man. There's no relief for his thirst. Not even a drop of water. He wishes that he could somehow warn those that he's left behind, but he can't. Worse, he lives forever behind what seems to be a one-way mirror. Apparently, he can see into heaven all that he's missed, but they can't see him. All hope is lost for this man. Imagine 
the torment of the eternal punishment called hell. Father, we thank you for these chapters in Luke and all the many things that we've covered tonight. Lord, I know that you've raised some issues in our own hearts, some things we need to deal with in our lives. Encourage us, Lord, to to be obedient to you, to walk with you, to know that your way is best. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.